You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It was a moonless night on which a sensible person would be at home with a bottle of vodka. Yet here they were, crowds of half-perceived faces in the dark. The poet, Yevtushenko, calls the Russian White House the wounded marble swan of freedom, swimming onwards to immortality. Scattered bonfires, sometimes singing, food and drink appears. Hard drink was rigorously banned. Anyone who showed up and looked like they were worse for wear from tippling was summoned out. No one wanted the checkist using the excuse that the crowd was a bunch of drunks. More lines are formed. Better drills. A man arrives in full uniform with all of his medals. He is 92. He was a tank commander in World War II. He stands near the barricade in front of the crowd. He doesn't join them. He stands in front of the crowd. He wishes to be the first to greet the tanks. I fought the Nazis, he said. I will take over from here. If the tanks come, I will order them to leave. No one doubts him. U.S. was of Athens, and we were of Sparta, said one Russian. Not uncommon to see soldiers, to see people in full uniform on the street. They participated, the military, there was no passe comateus. You have military on local councils, you have military within the government, you have military in the Soviets. This is true pre-perestroika, this is true post-perestroika. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We should think of the Soviet Union as a more militarized society, more militarized than the United States was at the time or now. Artifacts of the Great Patriotic War line the cities, the parks, the most common movies on TV over and over again are movies about the Soviets taking on the Nazis, an old man in the streets in 1983 in a nation where old men were somewhat rare, would walk in his uniform with full meadows in the street, and no one would think it was strange. But think of it as a military society, nervous about the enemies at its borders, does add a level of understanding. We know what that is, what America has been in a few times in its history, at a war status. We know World War II as World War II. In Russia's the war, Russians felt it. Their families felt it. Their memories and monuments tell them it was the Soviet citizen 
who lost in giant, hard-wrenching numbers to defeat Adolf Hitler. 20 millions of people died. This is known in the United States as a textbook stat, but it's not known really. It's not felt. It's not a double known the way that it is in Russia. The nation of the Soviet Union, then including Ukraine, was invaded. And even though the youngsters might be by 1983 getting tired of hearing about that great patriotic war with another movie again on TV, again another story from another old relative, as a Russian told an American journalist, your nation seemed to forget that Studebakers and food were admirable, and we appreciated the materials, but our nation lost 20 million people. Cannot be compared. Here's Regina Spector, the musician. When the country opened up under Perestroika, Spector left for New York with her parents, knowing no English and feeling like an outsider. For instance, she says, she was surprised, even in the late 80s, that her peers didn't act like World War II had just happened. When three of Spector's grandmother's brothers were killed, her grandmother had to hide their death notices because she thought her parents wouldn't survive the war if they found out. The war was ever-present. It was World War II that made a crazy concept of communism a real nation, a real victory, that the next step was it could accomplish anything. It means that a walk through any one of hundreds of Soviet cities would reveal a bride and groom posing next to the used military equipment, taking pictures next to tanks or rocket launchers. They still took photos in the traditional scenic places, lakes and forests and all, but the best photo for a wedding, the photo that the couple had to take, was next to a lovely green tank a symbol of the patriotic struggle. And after that, well, a visit to the Palace of Weddings. After which, through many a Russian street, a toast to the bride. You had just better do that. Not doing that would be like stepping on the American flag. Then after your toast, after the dirty look from the groom, you would carefully switch gears and offer a second toast to all the women of the Soviet Union. And your tension with the hulky groom, momentarily mitigated, you would watch as they snap photos of the bride and groom in front of a rocket launcher, a tank. It's all so romantic, the thought of kicking German butt to start your happy day. There was a side effect that most women in the Soviet Union complained about. There weren't as many men in that generation, and the younger men were raised as little gods because of World War II and the pretense of so many older women. Men were babied. A woman joked, I make all the trivial decisions in the household where we will vacation, if we will move to a new apartment, if we will buy a car. My husband makes the really important decisions. Can we rebuild communism? Should the Germans unite? When he got married, suddenly he forgot how to boil water or fry an egg. Yeltsin now appeals to the soldiers. Soldiers, I appeal to you. Think about your loved ones, your friends, and your people. At this difficult hour of decision, remember that you have taken an oath of allegiance to your people, the people against whom you're being forced to turn your weapons. A throne can be erected using bayonets, but it is not possible to sit on bayonets for long. The day of the conspirators are numbered. What kind of crap is this? Anatoly Sobchak, the mayor of St. Petersburg, had been with Yeltsin and separated from Yeltsin during his drive from his dacha to Moscow. I found out that an order to arrest me had in fact been issued, but they did not bother to send a special forces unit after me. 
the order was issued to the airport KGB agents. They agreed in word only. When I was sitting in the deputy's VIP lounge, three men came in. The concierge asked them to show their identification. They showed their papers. But though the KGB agents were armed, Sobchak had his own security force. He was four, they were three. Also, one of his security people knew the KGB agents. Later, I discovered they'd also had a plan to arrest me at the Pulkovo airport in Leningrad, but the chief of the Leningrad police had already sent a car for me. I dove into the car and went straight to the headquarters of the Leningrad military district. The office of the commander-in-chief is on the second floor. The door was not locked. The room was empty. I yelled at the top of my voice so the whole building could hear. What kind of crap is this? Isn't there anybody guarding the office of the district commander? A frightened lieutenant colonel ran out of some place or another. Under a different set of circumstances, he would have not let me in. But now he was standing at attention. I went on. Take me to the commander-in-chief. Yes, sir. They're meeting right in here, sir. Take me there at once. We went down to the ground floor. They were all sitting there, the little deers. Samsonov, Kirkhoff, the head of the KGB, locally. Savin, head of interior forces. Viktorov, the head of the Northwestern Military District. I noticed that they were not surprised by my sudden appearance, and I did not let them open their mouths. Right away, I gave them a whole speech. He goes to one of the generals, Samsonov, the head of the Leningrad Military Committee. Well, remember Tbilisi, you were just about the only one there who behaved rationally. What is happening with you now? Have you decided to join that criminal gang? And the general said, why is it illegal? I have an order. Sobchak says, you know very well that I am one of the people who drafted the law in the state of the emergency. There are only four situations in which it may be imposed on specified territory. Human epidemics, cattle epidemics, earthquakes, and mass disorders. Which one of these is taking place? We are introducing the state of emergency just in case, the general said. I have an order. There is a coded telegram. Show it to me. I cannot. It's secret. Then answer, does it contain the following words? Introduce martial law into the city of Leningrad. No, there are no words like that. I know there aren't, Mayor Subchak says. And you'd better remember the events in Georgia. You better remember General Rodinov. He too overstepped his orders. All he was ordered to do was protect military installations, but instead he threw his troops against the people. Are you taking the same path? One of the other generals says, Why are you raising your voice at us, Mayor Sobachuk? You would do better not speaking at all. Don't you understand by your very presence you are destroying your own party? Instead of sitting here right now, you ought to be running through the streets yelling that the Communist Party has nothing to do with this. But we have an economic collapse. Industrial production is falling. That's a lie. Sobchak says, In the first six months of this year, Leningrad's industry overfilled its quota. I then turn to the general. Viktor Nikolaevich, I ask you to do everything in your power to prevent the army from entering the city. He said, All right, I'll do it. Sergei Medvedev was a journalist for the central news program Vremia Time. He reports to the office promptly at 9 o'clock. All the bosses were already sitting in their places. Our chief editor, they got him up at 2 in the morning. They surrounded the building with military vehicles and paratroopers, judging by their clothing. All this was visible from the windows of the building. 
there was almost nothing being broadcast. Some programs were closed and others, like our news programs, were given a packet of documents. At around 11 o'clock, I'm afraid to say precisely, maybe it was 11.40, I saw on CNN that tanks had entered Moscow. When the tanks arrived, my colleagues and I began to count them. We counted 40. We understood that this was very serious business. The tanks went through the center of Moscow. They came down Kaliningrad Prospect. Then CNN began to show the first spontaneous meetings. We tried to go out into the street. But it turned out that starting that morning, taking cameras out for filming was controlled. Representatives of the State Emergency Committee, KGB employees, forbid anyone to leave. Then in the middle of the day, it became possible to leave to film with a permission signed by the chief editor, but no one lower than that, not a deputy, no one but the chief editor. The chief editor signed such a statement for me. It was interesting that no one else was making such requests. Everyone sat in the studio and complied with the instructions. The chief editor told me, be very careful, Sergey. You shouldn't go out because of the tanks. And Sergey said, all the same, we'll go. We left. We went to the other building because the cameras and the operators are there. It's in the other direction across the street. At first, they wouldn't let us in one entrance. We got in through another one. We were lucky to carry out a camera, and we went through the exit without the signature of the KGB chief who was sitting with us in the building. I think we managed to do this because there was some confusion about who had allowed us to pass. They weren't sure what kind of signatures were needed. Paratroopers didn't know whose signature was valid and whose was not. We had one from the chief editor. Therefore, we left quietly, got in the car, and drove off. At first, we went to Manej Square. A meeting had already ended, but meetings kept occurring spontaneously one after another. Several rows of trolley buses were at the entrances. We did manage to get to the square. Police were all around. I said, we are news people from television. We are authorized by some kind of authority. I didn't say by whom. To film everything. The police were busy with the trolley buses, trying to pull them away with tow trucks. And when they got a cleared passage, we managed to get through it. It was then we realized that the action was happening at the Russian White House. We drove in the car almost to the first barricades. When I saw the barricades, honestly speaking, I rejoiced because I understood that there would be resistance, not just in words, as often happens in Moscow, noise, shouting, but things don't go further than that. We began to film all of this. We began to film meetings with people who were building the barricades. Then how the leaflets were being thrown out of the building. How orators were speaking. We were there for quite a long time. It was already almost 8 p.m. when we returned to the studio. Verima is a show that's on at 9. I was 100% convinced that in the studio, nobody had any need for what we filmed. And unexpectedly, the first deputy editor said, get the material ready about what is going on today in Moscow. We sat down quickly and began to edit. He said, later I'll look at what you have. This is going to be one of the significant events of the coup. Couple, there's, there's many. This is one of them, the broadcast. And a lot of people have questions about it. And what you get from Medvedev's is that it's not like a really well thought out thing. In fact, all of the action is happening five minutes before they go on the air. We didn't have anything ready. Five minutes before 9 p.m. At that time, he entered and said, let's have a look. And I said to the deputy editor, we're not ready yet. We've only done half of it. We can show you what you have, but without sound. I read it to him from the script. We showed him the first part of our report. 
There was a big statement from Yeltsin with an appeal to the people. This appeal was about four minutes long. The editor looked at it and said, what comes next? I said, I said, well, we'll show the barricades and the people there. He said, you must shorten Yeltsin. But he didn't say take it out completely. He said, shorten it to a minimum. Out of four minutes, maybe 40 seconds of Yeltsin were left, maybe a minute. The editor said, okay. After this, I ran into the editing room. We finished the report with interviews, with the barricades. In general, everything was there. It's not boring here. You take a train for 20 minutes, and it takes two hours. You go to buy sausage, and all they are selling is videotapes. You'll not hear things like, where there's a will, there's a way, or the sky's the limit, unless it's sold short as in, there's no limit to pain, grief, waiting, cold, incompetency. Then you could say the sky's the limit for the amount of bureaucratic red tape you might face. One Sovietologist summed it up, pain and loss is more meaningful and real. There's always more to lose. Loss is constant. Anything problematic seems to imply depth and infinity. Historian describing his trip to the West, a Russian historian said, Oh yes, you in the West have beautiful cities, gleaming and clean, skyscrapers of gold and silver, so much wealth. But after two days, I long for Moscow, our crooked streets, our regular buildings, haphazard but full of life. Your cities will never be. Give me Moscow. Construction debris in Russian cities, annoying, but anti-bourgeois. Neatness is counter-revolutionary. What will one do without our catastrophes? You hear things like this. Strana Chudes, Strana Dorokov, Land of Wonder, Land of Fools. I don't know how this nation got Sputnik up. I think it was aliens. During Perestroika, lots of hypnosis TV ads on TV. New critiques of government. New negativity. On the street and in the kitchens, long laments. Nancy Reese, a sociologist who studied Russia, decided that legends and talks of Russian people involved not red riding hoods and not wolves, not three bears, but bread, sausage, cigarette acquisition. Well, Russians, what do you expect? A very common thing to say. Well, Russians, what do you expect? A mix of amazement and acknowledgement of the toughness. Every family has a story of the hero babushka, the hero grandmother or grandfather who waited in line to get that flower. Stories of trading a jacket for sausage, sharing a small piece of apple. Up there, they focus on their parliament. The Narad will always get by. The more wealth one has, the less humane they are anyway. It's the poor fellow who splits his tobacco. The long laments not to complain all the time, but also to show that one doesn't have any advantage. This country is an anti-Disneyland, one of Reese's interview subjects told her. An anti-Disneyland. We don't have all that fancy and flash. Soviets tended to brag about their trouble. 
Do you think perestroika was invented by scientists or politicians, one joke went? Politicians, of course. Scientists would have tried it on dogs first. How could perestroika be bad from a Western point of view? It was such an improvement in the USSR. Did they want to go back? It means liberty, and that has to be good. But in a country where rumors spread faster than telecommunication was allowed to, there was talk. Perestroika was just a plot by the elites to steal their money. Thieves who plagued the Union all along could now be honest, open, about the illegal goods they stole from the country. It was the CIA, maybe. It was a nomenclatura. It was going to lead to bad things, selfishness, greed, lack of concern for fellow Russians. The problem with perestroika, went a Russian joke at one time, is you cannot eat it. The factory belongs to no one, so no one cares. No one can fire you. As a result, you learn quickly that you don't have to work. And understanding the situation, the USSR, if you're an American like myself, if you grew up watching movies like Moscow and the Hudson or other things, it's not always easy. How do we understand such a system so far into us? Where some of the strongest repression was quiet, repression self-inflicted, fear of police or snitches, causing dishonor to you or your family, being the bad ones, unhelpful to the republic, that's what you are, scorn of elders, even peers, the pointed finger, the distant laugh. The U.S. doesn't have the same mentality, though it came at different times, right? Loose lips sink ships was part of that in our history. If you see something, say something. They are on signs now. Those are very Soviet-like concepts done in a different way. Such tenants were part of Soviet life. Even in the 70s or 80s, traveling around the USSR, you would always be subject to requests. Where is your documenti, your papers, for travel, entry into factory, staying at a hotel, ubiquitous layers of people who could ask for these papers? Every building had a woman at the door, it seemed. KGB, yes, but there were some agents, state police, militia, Moscow police, you really needed papers. Every factory had what we might call an HR department, but they called it a first department. A resume provided... Not by you, but by your employer. Kept on you. It was HR and steroids. Kept a watch for other employers. A full dossier on your strengths and your weaknesses and your activities. For a new job, for travel, for a promotion, a full characteristica must be obtained but from your first department. The first department was on any enterprise handling censorship and occasional tips about your behavior. So acting up at work did not mean getting fired. That wasn't the danger so much. But it could impact your life and vice versa. A man whose son insisted on wearing a mohawk at school, according to the author Hendrick Smith in his book The Russians, was ridiculed, punched, and cut off from promotions at work. Take out the communism and totalitarian factor. Russia and Soviet times was a formal country, polite, conservative. Men wore hats long before they were abandoned by men in the U.S., According to the travel book for Americans coping with Russia, Russians will meet you according to your dress and will see you off according to your mind. People were regulated in their behavior. Older babushkas, they would have no problem correcting the behavior of a younger woman in public. It was very common for things to be unsuitable, not prohibited, but just unsuitable, reflecting poorly on the person. And many people operated with a you-can-never-be-too-careful attitude. Buremia now goes on the air with its regular news program, and mostly what it's reporting on is exactly what the emergency committee wants 
their statements, their decrees about the crime program, that the anti-crime program, about how Perestroika has failed. They do name the leaders of the emergency committee. You see that there's very important and influential people behind this group. Here's Sergei Medvedev. When the report was broadcast, it was though the ceiling crashed in on my head. The chief editor complains that what we aired was a direct appeal to people to come to the barricades. It was instigating material. But judging by everything, he was repeating someone else's words. He had never seen the broadcast. All the telephones began to explode. Yuri Prokofiev, the secretary of the Moscow Party Committee, phoned. Alexander Sasokov phoned. He's a central committee secretary. Boris Pujo phoned. Internal ministry. I don't remember who else for sure, because I didn't talk with them. I didn't wait around to see how everything would come out, although before I left, one of the deputy editors began to shout at me, How could you deceive us? You gave an interview to people in the opposition. He blamed me for a phrase at the end of the report. If we have the chance, we will get you additional information later about what is happening in Moscow. Everyone blamed me for this phrase. Later, I learned that many who defended the White House found out where to go and what to do precisely for my report. But at that time, I didn't know any of this. I just went home. I didn't want to wait. I just slammed the door and went home to my wife and child. We put our daughter to bed, and I said to my wife, let's go to the White House. The next morning, a big meeting took place of the leaders of television where they considered, among other things, the question of what to do to me. Our chief editor was ordered to demote me from the position of commentator to senior editor. In monetary terms, the salary is half as much, and I was deprived of my right to appear on the air. Then the chief editor said to me, Listen, Sergey, you have to go hide somewhere, because I don't know what will happen next. Here's from David Sater. The Soviet pension for advertising what is meaningless and concealing what is important can deepen the psychological distance between Westerners and Soviet citizens by depriving words of their meaning. This is reflected in a wide variety of situations from Soviet claims to have been invited into Afghanistan to the behavior of the women who manage the cafe next door to my office. They shut the doors when they feel like. The successful creation of a false facade for foreigners and the irresponsibility with words in the Soviet Union both stem from the basic Soviet attempt to convince people that the truth is what they are shown or told and never what they can learn independently. One night, a friend of mine, Volodya, came home after an alcoholic binge to find his wife and mother waiting up for him and, in his words, ready to strangle me. He had been out with his friend Petya. In a distinctly Soviet attempt to save himself, he said to his wife, Petya's dead. Volodya's wife, who was fond of Petya, burst into tears, helped her husband into bed, and brought him a cup of tea. When she left, Volodya picked up the phone and called Petya. He told Petya to stay out of sight for a few days because he had told his wife that he was dead. Petya has also been drinking, agreed, and went back to sleep. The problem is, the next day Petya forgot about it, and he saw Volodya's wife on the down escalator at the metro station as he was riding up. He waved at her, and then, realizing his mistake when he saw her look of absolute horror, began shouting, No, no, I'm dead, I'm dead, forget about it. Seder writes, only in the Soviet Union would a man in Petya's position have felt there was a chance to convince her. 
сказать, что мы надеемся, мы надеемся на то, что Михаил Сергеевич... With that preface, I think it's time to talk about the press conference that Yanayev has. Here's from Serhii Plaki's The Last Empire. The time had come to face the public and tell the Soviet people and the international community what the plotters wanted. Scores of foreign reporters and a select group of Soviet reporters were invited to a press conference at 6 p.m. in the press center of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. There, a few weeks earlier, Bush and Gorbachev had held their press conference. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Gennady Yanayev, ostensibly running the committee and this, this emergency committee and running the Soviet Union, opens it up. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and comrades, because Mikhail Seregovich Gorbachev is unable owing to the state of his health, to discharge the duties of the president of the USSR, the USSR vice president has temporarily taken over on the basis of Article 127 of the Constitution. He was referring to himself. The Soviet Union is faced with a deep crisis, a sharp drop in output, ungovernability, dissatisfaction among the people, a threat to the country's integrity from all of these multiple authorities. We cannot have unified civil rights or foreign policy, Blood is being spilled in inter-ethnic clashes. A decision has been made to set up an emergency committee. Serhii Plotki describes what was seen. Weary and under stress, Gennady Yanayev, who had known nothing about the coup a day earlier and could have hardly imagined himself a leader, was now charged with selling it to the public. A decision has been made to set up an emergency committee, and he names all the people, defense, KGB, internal affairs, Prime Minister Pugo, the head of the state enterprises, the head of the peasants' union, the head of transportation. They've got the power players in the Soviet government. He insists, we promise to conduct a broad-based popular discussion on the draft of the union treaty. There will be a discussion, but everybody will get to participate in it. You know, when you look back, it's like the coup is a kind of anonymous thing. But reading the transcript of this press conference, the coup has a voice. And you see the points they're making. Calm down. Everyone get back to your corners. And we'll take a look at all this reform that Gorbachev has implemented. The things that Yeltsin and the Democrats are screaming their heads about. That's their rhetoric anyway. He assures world governments, this is key, that they will honor their treaties. This might be slightly reassuring to a President George Bush watching. And maybe if he hadn't done the next thing, maybe Yanayev just issuing the statement might be fine. But Yanayev asks, Is there any questions? The first question is from an American news source, Newsweek. 
Where is Gorbachev? Undergoing treatment in the clinic, Yenayev says. What are the tanks for? For the safety of the people. It's like tennis ball, racket. In a corner, a Soviet journalist is cringing. Tatiana Malkita. She's thinking to herself, these foreign fools. Such reputations for journalism. And they're fooled by these easy answers to softball questions. She's surprised to be let in herself. She didn't have a pass. She slipped in when another was distracting some men at the door. It's her birthday. And for some reason, she's getting in her mind, it's my birthday and no one can touch me. It's my special day and I'm going to do something special today. But it's not her chance yet. A question from old, reliable, old Pravda, the Communist Party newspaper. Perestroika has not produced meaningful results because it has no plan. Will the laws continue to function? Yanayev gives a long answer on this one. A lot of Soviet bureaus speak about enterprises and intra-agency communication and proofing. But he does say he won't abandon all of Gorbachev's reforms and make changes. But they need to calm down the border crisis and get state enterprises to work with each other. Pravda asks about Yeltsin. So he's not working with you. The republics on the whole agree with the decision to create an emergency committee. What about Yeltsin? I spoke with Boris Nikolovich Yeltsin. I consider the call for a general strike an irresponsible statement. And we probably can't afford a luxury of political games in the crisis we are in. It is then when an Italian reporter from La Stampa asks a question. Can you tell us, Yaneev, what is the state of your health? I think it's all right. It allows me to work 16 to 17 hours. I do not look so bad. That is not what TV viewers will think later, but it wins over the internal crowd a bit. They chuckle a bit. They remember when he was before the Supreme Soviet being appointed and he was asked about his health and said, I am just fine. I look, my health is all right. Others are noticing his hands shaking a little. The Italian reporter asks, which constitutional authority, the president or the president, with agreement from the republics, that the Constitution would normally say is needed to approve a committee, has approved it? This is a missile fired at him. They, this, is, this is directly questioning La Stampa, the, uh, the Soviet Constitution, and as it contrasted with their behaviors. Yanev says, this required immediate action. He's admitting extra-constitutional activity, but he has a crutch. August 27th. We will ask the Supreme Soviet to confirm our action. It's the 19th. That's a good nine days of rampantly doing what the committee wants. The Italian reporter doesn't follow up on that, making her Soviet press colleague tremble. Oh, these foreigners. She got close, that Italian reporter, but she didn't hit the target. Soviet TV now asking Yanev about food problems, about housing problems. Yanev says, those are interesting questions. We are going to do an inventory of everything we have and try to maximize the harvest. What he doesn't say is that the emergency committee has ordered extra bread from Ukraine SSR to ship to Moscow for the next few days to create an atmosphere, a seeming atmosphere of plenty. Not all of it arrives. He certainly doesn't mention those handcuffs that were ordered. Argumenti Facti magazine, now well-read political magazine, asks... What is going on with the press? Why are you closing newspapers down? They aren't closed down, Yanev says. We are just asking for them to register. Novosti Information asks Pujo, the prime minister, about crime. Now here's something that's overlooked in the press conference. 
His face almost lights up at this softball pitch. He talks about how there are new ways to fight crime and how they will be implementing them. By using law and order agencies, better is one. By having joint military and police to patrol the streets fighting crime. See, it's a worrying answer. It had to be a worrying answer for hardliners. It's music to their ears. We think about it sometimes, like if a neighborhood has really bad crime, I call the army in. That's dangerous in a democracy. It's not normal practice even in the Soviet Union. When does crime become political? Will they be searching for Democrats in Russia instead of mythical gangsters? And if it wasn't for the next questioner, maybe that one would have sunk in more. But a Soviet journalist from the News Gazette, a more um, critical newspaper in normal times, Tatiana Melkita now gets her chance to just ask, could you please say whether you understand that last night you carried out a coup d'etat? Which comparison seems right to you? 1917? Or 1964? The revolution, she means, or the removal of Khrushchev? Now, Yanev is noticeably disturbed by the question. I would beg to differ with you. No coup d'etat occurred. Yet, Yanev's not trained enough in this art. You know, when you are having a discussion about whether something's a coup d'etat or not a coup d'etat, it's kind of not good for your case. This is the moment that many will cite their opinion turn when many are noticing his hands trembling a bit as he's speaking. This emboldens another Italian newspaper to ask, did you ask for any advice from General Pinochet? Please refrain from expressing emotion, Yaneev says. The reference to Pinochet has really changed the equation in the press conference because this is uh, Pinochet's um, coup and then American involvement in overthrowing Allende, which has now been documented and putting Pinochet in power, is something widely known in the Soviet Union because, of course, it's a strike against America. It's, it's, it's high in their perception of something that's wrong to do. Using the Pinochet example is more than just what it might seem to our ears. We did not take power. This is temporary inability of the president we are speaking of. A reporter from the United Arab Emirates asks, Is Gorbachev safe? Yes. An AP reporter, Will you use force? We will do everything in our power not to. Here's Stephen Kotkin. Perhaps nothing did more to undermine the Gang of Eight than the fact that they organized a televised press conference and submitted to unscripted questions. After the press conference... Malkita would say that it was a soap opera. The stars were being pulled beyond the stage. She's getting a lot of congratulations for standing up. People would start to recognize her on the street. Not unlike in American TV, people were criticizing her for the dress she wore during the press conference that she didn't plan to attend. Said Stephen Cohen, Yaniev fumbled and appeared to be drunk. Not only Pavlov, Kroyachkov, were absent, failing to use the state media effectively. The committee also allowed Western TV journalists to operate freely to ask them questions. Now, that's an interesting observation, but as is not always mentioned, it's a Soviet journalist who knew the question to ask. (laughs) 
We're building communism, said a billboard in Moscow in 1980. There was a lot of advertising in the Soviet Union for a country with few products to speak of. But it was an advertising of concepts, telling you what to do, telling you what was suitable. We're building communism. Wait, weren't they communist? Yes. But the Communist Party was an ideological force moving towards that goal. Russia never said it was achieved. The debate that you'll hear time and time again, I'm not really going to address this one on this show, is that that's not real communism. What the Soviet Union had is not real communism. It's not what Marx wanted. And, you know, I get it. There's there's these theoretical arguments. My question would be, how do you ever get to what, what Marx wanted? It is absolutely true. Its government considered itself a socialist country and not yet a communist one. It, it, it's almost akin to, you know, we have in the U.S. the Democratic Party. That doesn't mean that every Democrat believes that full democracy is achieved. There's a lot of debate about that. Similar here, the Communist Party is a moving towards goal. Here's what one former Soviet said on the website, Quora. Whether we even had socialism is debatable. Whatever it was, it failed. It crashed and burned, and the Cold War had very little to do with it. And a phrase that I will hear quite often doing my podcast. Not a single American foot was on a tank on August 19th, 1991. That may not be true, but no, no official government foot. What was it then if it wasn't communism? It was a system where you could probably get a TV for your family and having a TV in most countries in the world was still a good thing in the 80s. Every family in the major cities owned a summer house outside the city, one road countered by another. Not in every family, are you kidding? Whenever I hear that, it screams of middle class nomenclatura. Who was the thief in the family to get that? There were Soviets who lived in the bottom floors and then those who rode the elevator. For most, life was tough. Finding a kiwi, an orange, a pineapple was a difficult task. It was not a land of vitamin C. My great aunt bragged about how she ate a banana once. Most USSR allowed people to live in small flats. Getting a Moscow flat was a lifetime achievement for a family. A few could buy cooperatives, but it was hard. No one got a dach except for astronauts, poets, scientists, military workers. You might get a piece of land in the country if you waited a long time, then wait longer for materials to build on it. Everyone had some food, some housing, some education. But the USSR was a sick old man, a decaying country. In all these stories, what I don't hear is repression, like we might have seen in, in old movies. But in the 1980s in the United States, that's what we were told. I never felt repressed, said an interviewee from the book Soviet Baby Boomers. I never felt repressed. Maybe I was and no one told me. I never experienced any oppression. We lived well back then, in a large, wonderful, highly regarded country. Perhaps I was inoculated during my childhood. Weisberg, the creator of the Americans TV show, said that he wanted to do the Americans because growing up in the Reagan years, he had an image of the Soviet Union that it was like a basement dungeon from American TV that doesn't match the bright picture of those who lived there. Weisberg may take it too far when he said people had rights and courts and a constitution. It's true, there was that in a court system. Among the rights were to own property, right to free speech in the Constitution, right to religion. Though there are other parts of the Constitution that deal with unpatriotic speech. 
1991, the Soviets did something that had never been done before. They had a referendum. It was boycotted in Baltic republics, in Moldova, in Georgia, but everywhere else a simple question was asked. Do you consider necessary the preservation of the Soviet Union? Well, nothing can be that easy. So the question was, do you consider necessary the preservation of the Soviet Union as a renewed federation of equal sovereign republics in which rights will be preserved for any nationality? A little more vague, but still in its essence is asking for a vote on the Soviet Union. If you don't want the Soviet Union to continue, you vote no. And less than 25% of people voted that way. 113 million people, nearly 80%, 77.85 to be exact, voted yes to preserve the Soviet Union. And I don't think this is well known in America that the Soviet Union had this vote in 1991. It was overwhelmingly, let's keep the Soviet Union. And it's ironic because what's going to happen in less than a year? But they had this vote. Why do they conduct this referendum? For Gorbachev, he wanted to conduct it to be able to go and get that renewed federation, the second part of the question. But Gorbachev was also interested in keeping the Soviet Union, not disbanding it. Yet on August 19th, Yaneyev, in his press conference, the emergency committee and their statements are going to use this referendum saying, see, the Soviet people wanted to preserve the Soviet Union. And these politicians and schemers want to break it up. They presented it as they were protecting their vote. In all the talk about communism and seen as a, as a negative, we should understand that many, it was not a country of zombies and it was not a country of dissenters. There were many people who supported the ideal of communism in that country. That when they saw that billboard that said, we are building communism, it was in line with their feelings. That doesn't mean they didn't have complaints doesn't mean they didn't see how the system wasn't always working. A young prosecutor was making his way to a Soviet officialdom. First, this job, a good record convicting those criminals, obvious attention to detail, attendance at all the proper party meetings, speeches with vigor, that little extra spin on how to bring Marx to life today. But first, the young prosecutor had to get an apartment, a place to live, and he couldn't find one in the city where he was a prosecutor. Oh, said a colleague, you know, um, just use your rap sheet. My rap sheet? Yeah, you must be prosecuting an illegal apartment broker in there somewhere. Oh, sure, but I couldn't. He won't hold his prosecution against you. It's not your fault. And maybe you could do him a little favor, you see? Mikhail Gorbachev took this advice. And the young prosecutor saw the system as it really worked. He got his apartment. Later, as he rose up, cultivating relationships with leaders, he'd go to Canada on an agricultural mission and see their farms. He couldn't believe how well their system worked and how much they produced. How do you get them to get up so early? Gorbachev asked. In our collectives, we're having a problem with that. They just looked at him like he had two heads. In order for the farm to work, they have to get up early. How are they going to make any money? See, there would be these voices. There would be these voices out there. Victor Trakashkin, the KGB agent that we've quoted before, would say that the system wasn't working was always obvious. 
to the KGB. They support Perestroika in the beginning. They support and cheer the ascension of Gorbachev in the beginning until Gorbachev started turning his reform more on things that they were interested in. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. They saw the problems. And Dropoff, who's Gorbachev's going to be a protege of, was the head of the KGB for decades. And he sees the need for reform. He was someone who was fond of going down to train stations and getting shirkers to during the day to get back to your offices, get back to your factory, get back to work. And he'd send agents and other officials to do the same when he became the leader of the Soviet Union for a brief time. He's one of many who kept Argumenti Facti open. One of the most read magazines in the world, 30 million subscribers, not really well known in the West, that would publish letters from average Soviet citizens. People that would see the problems and report on them. Why would they allow this? Well, it was a great way. The publicity was a great way to see, to identify the problems that bureaucrats could not, that bureaucrats might be hiding, to see where there might be crime. Average Soviet citizens, eyes and ears. Broad-based snitching, in a way. It's a way of getting the pain points, and they saw them. When the August 19th events happen, and Cherkashian sees the emergency committee in action, good, I said, something finally is being done. Because Gorbachev had run out his clock. Now, Cherkashian is not just any KGB agent. He's the agent who cultivated Aldridge James over at the CIA, the traitor at the CIA, who would end up providing valuable information. In fact, during all the events, during Perestroika, during all the events around 1991, and even into the post-Soviet period, he's not going to get caught till 95, Aldridge James is giving information to the Russian government. Cherkashin, his reward is to be reassigned to Moscow because there was too much envy. He still liked the system. And he came in every day during the coup, as his fellow KGB workers did, and worked extra hours, noting everything going on. Why do some people have everything, flats and dotches, and others have nothing, wrote a letter in Argumenti Facti, one of the most read publications in the world, as we said. Another wrote, don't let young people leave the USSR. He was a teenager and had a chance to go. I cannot be a patriot anymore after leaving the USSR and seeing what the rest of the world is like. Why do some people have everything? The answer was partially that, because of the system in the Soviet Union, high incomes weren't a way to reward people. You couldn't have people making seven to ten times what workers made. To keep salary equality, generally speaking, even that was not achieved. 
Higher ups were paid in benefits that were more invisible. The special restaurant, the private steam bath, the private stores that actually had things on shelves, and a better future. Children of officials were one-seventh of the population, but one-third to a half of admissions to provincial universities. Studies of Soviet records afterwards showed that only about 0.2% of the Soviet Union population could be considered elite. They never built communism, quite. Most Soviets made a pittance, a minimal amount, supplemented by illegal trade or side work. And those families that could do that were able to eat better, live better, maybe have enough money to purchase an apartment to get a lease from somebody else through a broker. Even if the Gulag had just become a prison like any other prison, David Sater, the journalist from the London Times, wrote, he was blue in the face screaming in his articles from the late 70s because no one was talking about the Russian prison work system. Over a million prisoners were put into the system, some for small periods, some for drunkenness, some for real crime. It was building housing. It was building railroads. It was the greatest unfree workforce in the world in the Soviet Union, and few Western journalists dared to write about it. Either they were bamboozled by party officials giving them scoops, showing them the new airport that most Moscow citizens wouldn't use, or being afraid of jeopardizing world peace by writing a bad story. Sater would eventually become unfavorable and be kicked out in the post-Soviet era. He wrote about working conditions. Unions were not unions as we know them. The Soviet Union was not a worker's paradise, as it was said. Case in point, the miner Vladimir Klebonov, a mine worker who, along with 72 others, in the late 70s signed a letter protesting working conditions. 12-hour shifts, hundreds of injuries, broken safety equipment, making mine shafts dangerous. For this, he was charged with the slander of the state. He continued, because one must be delusional to keep slandering the state, he was confined to a mental institution and could no longer talk to Western reporters. Sater was refused to talk to them. Others that he knew that had been to see him said, you wouldn't be able to talk to him anyway. He's been drugged. Blue collar people. While the constitution of the Soviet Union provided a 41 hour work week, many workers were stretched, especially those in key industries involving resources or the military. When they complained, there was no special points for being working man. In literature and law, that all favored the dungaree-wearing worker, but not in the actual system. A locksmith who applied for a greater wage was told by a local party leader to quit complaining. When he complained more, he was told he would eat from a pig's trout. True to their word, he was fired and put on a substance pension. A woman who worked at a restaurant for party officials, an elite closed restaurant at Volograd, found her pay was docked often because of stolen or broken plates. She hadn't broken any plates. The restaurant managers were taking them and selling them and using the docked workers' pay to finance it, blaming it on the workers. When the waitress complained, she lost her job. Another woman complained about stolen funds in state offices. Her manager was told to write her up. Not write up the people taking the money, write up the person complaining. When he didn't do it, he received a visit from the militia at his home, interrogated and roughed up. But this system worked mysteriously. He never lost his job. That would be too obvious. His wife, poof, lost hers all of a sudden. The head of an unofficial Ukraine human rights watch was denied treatment for a kidney infection and given a long, long train ride on a prison train. Given the medical condition, he did not survive. This all in the early 80s. Sater, though, 
who's a critic. He's talking about people who are protesters or dissidents, complainers. There was a lot of in-between going on in the Soviet Union. Alexei Yurchak, in his excellent book, Everything Was Forever, Until It Was No More, talks about people who are kind of semi-dissidents. You know, most people were neither mindless zombies nor refusenecks shaking their fist. It was very common to be somewhere in between. As he said, uh, dissidents duiushi, dissident-like people. Actual dissidents were written off as unstable. Among the youngest generation living in the Soviet Union, the people who held sharply candid views and made comments didn't actually practice or protest in most cases. They might make little jokes, even if they were brave, write up little things, read subversive literature, listen to subversive music, foreign movies, hide it in their apartment. All these things could get you investigated. One of his interview subjects described a co-worker in his department who refused to pay dues needed for his profession. It was so silly, thought the other co-workers. It would lead to questions. They all might get in trouble. Think about one of them said, the poor girl who leads the, the collection. You're going to put her job in jeopardy. This is how the system self-enforced, collectively enforced. It wasn't always a guy in a big hat barking orders at you. Another described a worker in a radio factory who had an article critical of the war in Afghanistan near his desk, in full view of people who came by. Many people thought he had a screw loof. Rumors abounded soon that he was putting up pornography in his office, so the workers could see that wasn't true. It was just the article critical of Afghanistan. Still, he was unliked. From another interviewee of Yurchak, it's one thing to read about Dostoevsky's heroes, a Soviet office worker said, Another thing to have them in front of you, saying subversive things. It's unpleasant in the office to hear anti-Soviet talk. A student in our university was constantly critical of Brezhnev, of socialism. It was unpleasant, frightening to even hear a co-worker criticize, even though he wasn't marching anywhere or doing anything crazy. A few pokes at the leader is okay, but criticizing socialism itself was irking. This is why the author, Henrik Smith, was asked, where are all the Gorbachev liberals and all of these people in the, in the, the Democrats and these people in the Congress of People's Deputies that appeared now during August 19th? The people at the barricades, where did they come from? Where were the Gorbachev liberals before he appeared? The answer is that, Henrik Smith said. And Henrik Smith wrote The Russians in the 70s, one of the few American authors to go deep in the Soviet Union and talk to people. In the 70s, they were hidden, an army of defectors in place. They were smirking at the sallies of poets and clever humanists. They were at their kitchen tables. You know, as the construction boom, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, more people have kitchen tables. More kitchen tables, more kitchen table talk. These were the people that would now go to join the barricades. How come America couldn't see it earlier? There was at least one scholar that tried to tell us. In 1984, Stephen Cohen did something not extraordinary for an author. He published a book, Rethinking the Soviet Experience. And not for the first time, Cohen had challenged base assumptions that Americans have about what was called Sovietology, the way that American scholars would look to Soviet Union from the little information they had, looking at the output 
of the government that would be released to the rest of the world. Look at the Victory Day parades to see who was in the audience next to Brezhnev. Other things. A lot of it was conservative and influenced by big donors to universities like the Ford Foundation in particular, but also people that were afraid to an extent because the activities in the 50s in our own country involving the House Un-Americans Committee. And yes, some Russian watchers became hauled before that committee, and if they were too sympathetic, didn't work again. That could happen without a committee. You just might lose funding, which in a university could be the end of your professional career. Cohen faced that several times, writing books about how, you know, it didn't have to be that Stalin came to power. And if he didn't, it could have gone a different direction. We could have had a different type of Soviet Union we were dealing with. People don't want to hear that. But there's also the presence of Stalin, we must say, and the presence of dictatorship in the Soviet Union and the gulag, the purges. I flipped through his 1984 paperback, knowing, for instance, he doesn't know about Gorbachev. He doesn't know about Perestroika yet. Gorbachev's not in power when he writes this. Cohen criticized how American scholars viewed the Soviet Union. The totalitarianism school was all there was. It became consensus. It was on the basis of generalizations that claimed to explain the Soviet past, present, and future. It turned out to be wrong and misleading on all counts. Having imagined a Soviet history without rival traditions or alternatives, a Soviet political life now without societal factors and a monolithic regime without meaningful internal conflicts, Sovietology was impoverished, left with a static conception of a frozen system. Very controversial words in 1984. But but Cohen saw in the Soviet Union conflict, ever since the birth of the Soviet system, groups in top leadership have periodically advocated moderate, reformist, and even liberal domestic policies. Far more often than not, they have been defeated by proponents of more conservative or despotic policies. So the bad guys win. What's the revelation there, Cohen? Yes, there is extremist in the Soviet history. In 1918, forced collectivism in 1929, the Great Terror in 1936, the purges, the end of de-Stalinization in the late 60s. There was backlashes. But at each turning point, he connects the relationship between East and West on actions in the Soviet Union. We think it's just this black box that we can't do anything to see, that we can't affect. But at each turning point, the worsening of East-West relations played a role. The Cold War abets conservatives and neo-Stalinist forces in the Soviet Union. Reformers only stood a chance when we have East-West relations talk, detente. Break the monolith, Cohen urged. Break the monolith. Break that thinking and help the reformers. Cohen opened eyes. He hasn't been right every time. He he got Putin wrong in some of his future activities, passed away in 2020. But in this 1984 book, he's presaging something. There's more reformers there than you think. At the same time that there are conservatives, neo-Stalinists, you know, quiet reformers who might be within the system like an Andropov, or as it would turn out, a Gorbachev. We go back to Henry Smith's question. Americans have asked him, where were all these barricades protesters? Gorbachev liberals, Democrats, people that would side with Yeltsin, where were they all in the 70s and 80s? And I would answer, at their kitchen table. They were hidden, an army of defectors in place. And now, at the Russian White House, those who can, who hear about it, are going there. 
They're getting in front of the Russian state building and putting their body in front of tanks. Very few people who would be considered refuseniks, who Amnesty International would have on a list that the Helsinki groups would watch, very few of those people, some, maybe a handful, are outside the Russian White House right now. Mostly, it's just people. There aren't that many people at the Russian White House on the night of August 19th. Not as many as there will be the next day. And there's a worry. The Bolshevik likes to kill in the dark, the saying goes. Security in the building has decided the best thing is for people to form a human cordon. First one, and then a second. And lock arms. It's raining. People are being told that there might be gas attacks. They hand out masks. They discourage women from participating. This does not stop most of them. New Hero soldiers have come into the crowd from their units, defecting an army of gypsy cabs and taxis, sometimes with people contributing their own car, others contributing their various trucks and state vehicles until better barricades can be built. A crowd applauds each new group of volunteers that come in. People are struggling to pick up the leaflets, find out what's going on, and follow the instructions. A woman climbs on top of the barricade pile. I was never so proud of these people. Yeltsin makes more proclamations. He names members of the emergency committee and says they are criminals of the Russian state who will be prosecuted by the Russian state. Tanks are reported here there, everywhere, and the small crowd has to move to try to be where the tanks are as they get new rumors. Moving every 15 minutes, like a little makeshift army. We'll be stormed any minute, everyone says. The Czechists are preparing. They have an army. As if confirming, there are the sounds of gunfire in Moscow cracking randomly. It'll turn out to be tank commanders trying to get people out of their way, for the most part, but right now it's eerie. An adjunct professor, Teresa Chafee, from America, who is in Moscow studying, takes what will be like the last Moscow subway, it closes at midnight, and gets off at a station, which oddly is called Place of the Barricades in Russian, referring to an incident that occurred in 1905, during the first Russian revolution against the Tsar, where barricades played an important role. She wonders, will the 1991 Freedom fighters be up to the task. On the subway ride over, she's bothered by teenage hooligans making suggestions to her. A man gets up from across the car and sits next to her. He's an older man, but the minute the teenage hooligans see him, they not only stop bothering her, they apologize. She finds out the reason soon enough. The man is a Lithuanian activist. And he spent time in a Soviet prison. When someone has spent a significant amount of time sitting down, as you might say, even teenage hooligans know it. His hair, his look, his gaze. When Teresa Chafee gets off at the station, not only her, 
but the Lithuanian activists and the teenage hooligans will all join the barricades. Chavy knows it's dangerous, but she says, I decided then and there that I as an American would stand here with these Russians. I'd been studying with them, and now I would stand with them. And America, and someone shouts, the word spreads as American in the crowd, defending democracy in Russia. What a thing. A group of eight vehicles, tanks, and APCs arrive with a tricolor flag. There's cheers at this, and it really warms the crowd. These are heroes and people move out of the way. It keeps raining, and some take turns sitting in the buses that are part of the barricades. Everyone sees and is inspired by the sight of the vice president of Russia with his automatic rifle. He knows who he's up against. He knows what they're capable of, and he believes there will be a fight. Ammunition is coming in, and Teresa Chafee sees this. It may not be a fair fight, Chafee thinks, but at least it will be a fight. And not just a one-sided slaughter. This is part three.